This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm Innocent. And I'm the Machine. Oh, I presume that is incorrect. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. Mm. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching The Verdict. <laughs> His name is Frank Galvin. Four cases in the last three years. He's lost them all. He drinks. This man's scared to death to go to court. Frankie, listen to me because I'm done with you. I got you a good case. It's a moneymaker. The Archdiocese called up because the case is coming to trial. This is our chance to get away. I want to see that you get that chance. Court exists to give him a chance at justice. And is that what you're going to do? Maybe I can do something right. It's a generous one. People can't see this, Dave, but I don't know if this is like a, a lead up into your opinion of this movie, but you just did the biggest yawn. <laughs> like, are you awake? Are you okay? Not really. I went to bed really late. Okay. I started watching that comedy thing. If you're Canadian, there's a comedy show on Amazon where they bring all these famous... Canadian comedians, they oh, lock yeah, them in yeah. a room for six hours. I was desperate for a laugh, which I had to watch something on Netflix and I was miserable. So I had a good chuckle, but I mm. went to bed really, really late. High praise for this show that you can't remember the name of. I don't know. Um, anyways, we should <laughs> give a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions, of course, help us continue the show since the machine, you know, doesn't help us pay for these movies. Uh, and plus, we do a bonus episode each month. I think our last one was Wake and Fright. We're still in 1971 yeah, that's good on the Patreon. So if you want to listen to us talk about kangaroo death, <laughs> go and hit us up over on Patreon. Asterix, aside from the brutal animal cruelty, that was a good Brutal, movie. brutal animal cruelty. Pretty decent movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> end of times for every yeah. kangaroo in That's right. Australia. But otherwise, you know, it's a fun, lighthearted uh, thriller. I was kind of hoping for more death, honestly. Now, before we get into the meat of this episode, Dave, uh, we should probably advance the plot here. So have you been noticing that the machine has been going out at nights for some reason? No. <laughs> Thank you, to help. thank you for yes anding me, Dave. He, the machine has been like leaving like really <laughs> late at night. You've been too busy watching your stupid comedy programs, maybe you know, that you just haven't noticed. Uh, I've been stuck here with you, Kyle. I need a good laugh. Mm -hmm. All right. Time and space doesn't really make sense, does it? Because we're literally in the year 1982 here in Calgary of 1982. All right. And yet we still have internet. We can watch modern day programming. Can I just? And a sentient robot is out on the loose. I'm not sure. In 1982, are uh, colored people allowed in this city yet? <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes, Dave, they're allowed. Okay, you just have to fill out the form. It's fine. Well, what was the, uh, what was the, what are we talking about? I, I'm clearly We're in the, the mood. Plot. The machine is Let's going late out, out oh, late yeah. at night. And, it's going out at yeah. night. I'm sure that will come back up. Yeah. Later. Yeah, yeah. It yeah, has some, uh, in a future episode. Okay. Plot progression. 
It's all worth it. Dave, I also wanted to bring up some feedback that okay. we've received here. Right. Feedback is always good to read from the people who, uh, you know, interact with our show here. This is over on our Instagram. This is from Clement. He wrote us a comment over uh, again on our Instagram. We're at KDVSTM. This was some feedback on Pink Floyd's <laughs> on Pink Floyd colon the wall. Yes, uh, I'm ready. We, of course, had the counter opinion. We we even set that up as like, we're probably the two, only two people that don't like this movie for some reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Clement wrote this specifically on how wrong you were, Dave. Nice. I really want to underscore it. It's about you. Okay. You had this feeling that i disagreed with that by showing violence I, against women i disagreed with was, nice try <laughs> <laughs> that, that uh that by showing the violence against women that it was supporting violence against uh, women okay that okay. was kind of your point of view yeah and well, clement yeah. writes clement writes this yeah. and then you can respond back to him no it's okay yeah i respect his opinion one thing though i don't think depicting violence on females means condoning violence on females the punch is why it happened and it's easy to say because men are jerks and that they blame others that's just too easy of an answer there's a reason why immorality exists because we deep down have desires but that must be confined by moral grounds educated since we were children so the complication in life is revealed that what we have to do is to leave and ask should we live on are we reflecting what we're fearing so what is your rebuttal uh well i yeah i don't want to go on instagram but i don't disagree with what he's saying i think that Mm -hmm. we read i didn't say that this movie condones violence against women what i was saying is that roger waters hates women so uh yeah (laughs) wait before we get like uh oh is it libel or perjury when you say it up uh libel yeah perjury slander slander or is it like you watched a legal drama take it easy i know can't remember what it is whatever but i don't want to be sued for for slander so allegedly roger waters hates women you can see it i mean look <laughs> this film is blaming women for everything this is what we talked about i, I think you forgot because mm-hmm. clem is a very intel- intellectual person and he is right i mean thematically the depiction of violence against women it may come up in this movie is not in itself condoning uh depending on how it's contextualized or visualized but for me what i was trying to get at maybe i i wasn't eloquent particularly in the videos it's hard to be eloquent because we're so burnt out by the time we talk about it uh on camera <laughs> Right. What this movie reflects to me, it's his therapy session about how he blames everybody but himself for all his problems. Mm. And one of the things that he blames is women in general. And we see that in the depiction of like the uh, flower genitalia and how the female sort of vaginal flower becomes a monster and eats the penis flower. We see it in all the grotesque visualizations of the women who are destroying him, eating him, the groupies that are trying to ruin his life. His mother is disgusting. Like, that's what I was trying to get at, which is not that this picture, you don't watch this movie and say, oh, I could go out and punch a woman in the face. What this movie is like is that Roger Waters really has a problem thinking that uh, women are ruining his life. And the real problem is that he ruined his own life. I think what this comes... Well, I I will not be the defender of Roger Waters as the person because, yes, he did some questionable things in his life. However, I think this really does come down to our very different opinions on what the ending is supposed to represent. Whereas, like, is he succumbing to the fantasy? Uh (laughs) 
well, is he succumbing to his fantasy, which I feel is partly what you're trying to argue, right? Like he's envisioning himself as a fascist dictator because he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I am of the opinion that it's the opposite. He's right, right. fearful of becoming a fascist and he's trying to break out of that uh, that cycle. So is he breaking through the wall? The wall uh, is, is the metaphor for like, I've been enclosed in my mind too long, so let me break free and, and try to give myself some culpability. Uh, I think we just have a complete disagreement on well, whether that of course actually we disagree. is what is going on at how the can end. You dis- how can you agree when I'm right and you're wrong? So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, if you want to hear more about our thoughts on the wall, you can go back to that episode. Uh, I think we should probably talk a little bit about the, our history with this film in particular. Mm-hmm. I think you should talk more about vaginal flowers. There's two big names, I would say. In this movie, I guess three if we wanted to get into James Mason. Uh, but really, this is a Paul Newman starring Sidney Lumet directed film. So I want to start with Paul Newman. What's your history with Paul Newman? Uh, Paul Newman is uh, the best. I don't know. He's a fascinating American film hero. He's uh, super good looking. His eyes glow in the dark. I'm just going to say, gonna say in, it right now. Yeah. And I know that you make fun of me for bringing this up every time an attractive person is in a movie. But even at 56, I would have thrown down with Paul oh, Newman. Paul I'm Newman's, just going to say it right there. Paul Newman. Paul Newman is one of those guys. It's like Marlon Brando or whatever. They kind of ended up defining what it meant to be good looking in 50s, 60s, mm. 70s, you know, America. Now, of course, the standards have changed, but uh, Paul Newman's Paul Newman. You know, it's like we were talking about uh, Wake and Fright. Like a young, buff Pietro Tool mm. is a very good looking man. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. it's just the. Uh, and this why a lot of these people become actors. Anyways, um, by the way, another another pitch for people to go and watch Wake and Fright. Gary Bond, who's the star, who does look like a very young Peter O'Toole, very good looking, uh, hangs dong. Yeah. So I mean, that's another reason to go and watch some, that movie. You get some butt and butt. You can see his butt. Yeah, Butch Cassidy. Um, what do you call it? The Sting. Color mm-hmm. of Money. Yeah, all this stuff. Of course, we've already talked about him in Message in a Bottle, so I mean that's up on his like best of list. I'm I keep sure. forgetting that that was a movie. <laughs> um, he's all, but the thing about Paul Newman, uh, in my mind, is that he's not just a pretty. He's a fantastic actor. Like for mm-hmm. example, I didn't actually like Cool Hand Luke that much, but he's really good in it. Like he's just he's got one of those mm-hmm. uh, not just like he transcends the screen like some like Brad Pitt for example is good looking you know when he's a, but is he really a good actor I I can't say he's kind of himself but you know Paul Newman has ability to uh, truly uh, what is it not engage truly inhibit inhabit inhabit who cares inhabit, yeah. become different characters and I really like him for that uh, he also made salad dressing so. <laughs> he also right. made salad. I actually have, and this of is not even a joke, in the pantry, I have uh, uh, tomato sauce, Newman's own tomato <laughs> sauce. So yeah, who, who who can't love that? I I think the word we use consistently through our message in a bottle episode is like, this movie is fucking terrible. But Paul Newman, every time he comes on screen, is like this gravitas. And he's like, yeah. oh, this is an interesting movie. And then he leaves and it's like, oh, well, this isn't really working. <laughs> you just the like, rest you, of this you movie. You fall asleep and then someone nudges you like, he's back. Yeah. You're like, oh, Paul, thank you. <laughs> oh, okay, Paul's back. And I think that's so true. Like Paul Newman, every time he shows up on screen, he's like, I want to continue watching you. I don't even care what you're doing. I just find you so interesting to watch. If we had already watched it. I would say that this mm-hmm. is the first movie in a while where I didn't check how much time was remaining in the film. Right. Not that we've seen it yet yeah. in our deep and rich fiction, but... Well, to that point then, directed by Sidney Lumet, who has a, a huge extensive career. This is like just past, I would say, his midpoint mm-hmm. as a director. Because he started back in the 50s with 
12 Angry Men that's being his very first movie. That's what he the, started with. That's like one of the greatest <laughs> movies ever made. It holds up. Yeah. I mean, if anyone who actually yeah. takes time to listen to this podcast, <laughs> if you haven't watched 12 Angry Men, turn it off and go and watch it right now. Honestly, for, for a movie that's what, 70 years oh, old or something like that God. at this point? Yeah, it's like gripping still to this day. What an I amazing find, just to watch I that. mean, if you want to... If you want to see how human beings are, it's 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 amazing. Anyways, he's good. He's good. At, he's a good director. Yeah, I like Sidney Lumet a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's weird, even though I've only seen a handful of his films at this point, and I actually haven't even I haven't even seen some of his like really big ones. But even the five or six of them I've seen, it's like this, he is one of my favorite directors. I just enjoy how he decides to do it. Part of the reason is is he not forced? That's the wrong word, but encouraged long bouts of like uh, rehearsals because. Mm. He did TV and I think he did some plays and stuff like that too. But he wanted for before a single frame was shot. It's like, let's do a week or two of rehearsals and just get into the heads of these characters because it made him work fast. Because like, if you know what you're doing, then I can just shoot really quickly. and I don't have to like get hung up on getting the performance that we want. He's the anti Clint Eastwood. (laughs) That's right. Just like do one take and move on. Right. Have you seen this movie before, Dave? No, which I'm surprised about. But I, you know why I'm not that surprised? Because it's a procedural drama from 82, so still a baby. And uh, this sure. is not the kind of movie that would pop back up in popular culture. Even if, well, maybe if you're like a right. Paul Newman fan. But, uh, you know, if you say Sidney Lumet, you're going to go, with, I'm just looking like Dog Day Afternoon, 12 Angry Men Network. I don't really hear about the verdict, unfortunately. But I think there's a reason sure. for that and we'll talk about it. But anyways... Yeah, I mean, I this is going to be my second time watching this movie. And the first time I watched it would have been my mid-20s, I'm going to say. Like, early to mid-20s. And me and my friend Jamie went to a blockbuster. Nice. And we were looking for something to rent and watch. And what did two bros want to watch more than anything on a Friday night? The Verdict from 1982. <laughs> How did Paul that even... Newman. Like, was it, was it on uh, feature? So how would you even come across The Verdict at a blockbuster? I don't even remember. You have to Honestly, dig, I... man. It was just shelves and shelves yeah, of DVDs. Just, just walking around. And I think probably what it was is that I was starting to get into Sidney Lumet at that yeah. time. I was like, oh, Paul Newman. What? Directed by Sidney Lumet. That's cool. I was like, hey, do you want to watch this? And my friend was like, oh, yeah, sure. And then <laughs> we watched it. And yeah, from what I recall, it's like it's just a pretty standard uh, courtroom drama, mm-hmm. just really well acted. Mm-hmm. So yes. that's that's kind of what I remember from from this movie. I don't actually remember the specifics of even what the case is mm-hmm. other than there's actually one image that to this day I can remember of him, Paul Newman, that is standing in front of a, a pinball machine. Yes. That, is, that is for whatever reason, the image I can recall uh, from this movie, but that's about it. That's about what I remember. You don't have any more gripping blockbuster stories. Yeah, let's let's find out. I am excited to watch this for the first time. Oh, I just saw Great. Sydney Lumet did Murder on the Orient Express. It's good. That's Dead. the good one. If you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. that's the good one. Kenneth Branagh needs to stop. I actually, weirdly enough, you bring this up. I just went and saw Death on the Nile. Uh, the new one, Death on the Nile. Why? Death on the Nile. Why? You should love yourself more than that. Isn't that like, it's, it's Kenneth Branagh, so it's probably find, three hours I mean, they're long. Not, it's, they're not good or even great, but I don't know. I find them eminently watchable. I just like watching murder mystery Yeah, yeah. I like murder mysteries too, but he's uh, he's so long-winded. Like the death, uh, Murder of the Orient Express, Kenneth Branagh's is like an hour and a half too long. And he's not a good Hercule Poirot. He just doesn't have, he doesn't mm. have it. But anyway, that's okay. just my opinion. Well, well that's, we're not talking about that. 
uh, today. So let's do this. Let's go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about the verdict. Do you think you could have become a lawyer, Dave? Do you think that was ever in the cards for you? Yeah, I, I like to yell. And I used to like to drink. The problem is I don't like to think about stuff. And apparently you have to be illiterate. And uh, I don't mm -hmm. know. Reading's hard. I feel, I honestly do feel that you'd be great because you love being like, what did you just say? I disagree. And let me tell you why I disagree. <laughs> I could say anything. I feel like sometimes like I'm going to take the alternate position. No. That's like the Dave Young way. No, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel like I'm very agreeable. Yeah, yeah, I bet you would. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a very Dave thing to say. Listen, Dave, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. This week, Dave, we are brought to you uh, with Pod Power. And with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Overdue Finds. Overdue Finds is an Edmonton Public Library podcast. Bryce Crittenden and Carolyn Land host conversations about books, movies, music, pop culture, and other interesting news about Edmonton. There is no interesting news about Edmonton. Oh, wow. But the other stuff sounds Such a cool. Calgarian. It's a great way to learn more about what's happening at EPL, that's the Edmonton Public Library, and about how you can use your library card to access all of EPL's in-person and online services. To listen and find out more about Overdue Finds, head over to epl.ca slash podcast. This is, and I have to say, your library card is so great. Everyone should be using their library card way more than what they probably do. I don't know about Edmonton, but the Calgary mm -hmm. library card changed my life because mm -hmm. uh, we needed it, you know, for our son. And you can do yep. so much with that thing. And I, this yep. is not an ad for them, but there's like free movies. You get service to Canopy, like music. music. You can get a video game also, that you can rent out from there. There's no more late fees. Just get off your butts. <laughs> All right. Uh, we talk about Rumi a lot. So, Kyle, uh, I thought today I'd let them talk about themselves. Hi there, I'm Brendan, a certified home inspector with Rumi. Do you have a problem that needs fixing? Whether it's big or small, inside or outside, let me help you find out what's really going on. You can call me by phone, or we can take a look together over video chat. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and go to Ask a Home Inspector to book your appointment with me today. All right, Dave, we've finished watching this movie. So I guess just before we jump into talking about our opinions on it, mm -hmm. why don't you give the audience just a quick overview? What, did, what happens in this movie, Dave? Well, this is a legal, what do you call it? Courtroom procedural drama. I don't know. There's too many subgenres, but basically there's a, a loser like an alcoholic ambulance chasing lawyer right. who's just broken. His friend throws him a case, meaning, uh, sorry, his friend throws him a case that's meant to be a quick settlement to get him some money. And then right. he has uh, a crisis of conscience in this sort of like late life uh, crisis of his own to um, take this to court and stick it to the big guy. And it's a mess. Uh, the, the case is a mess. And in the end, um, you know, we get to see... One perspective of how the legal system in Baston works in the 1980s. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of like how you describe it without Wikipedia and going line for line, minute by minute. But that's how I read this movie. Yeah. 
No, I think that's I think that's dead on. So, what were your thoughts about the verdict? Uh, so, as you brought up in our preamble, this is uh, beautifully shot, and the acting is fucking ten, like ten score. This is some of the best acting right, right. as a, as a I don't know is it big enough to be an ensemble cast or is this still a Paul Newman vehicle? But there isn't a single weak performance. Everybody's so good in well, this. Well, I, I agree with that. For me personally, this is yeah mostly a Paul Newman film. With James Mason, I love James Mason's voice. <laughs> I just love his voice so much. So he's kind of the co-lead, and then kind of unfortunately Charlotte Rampling, who is underutilized. In yeah, this movie. she's such a great. Uh, I mean, even when she's in it, you just want more because she's she's great. Yeah. But we'll talk about that too. I will just jump out and say I fucking hated the ending of this movie, and mm. there's a reason for that. As I looked it up, the, from what point would you consider the ending? Spoiler alert, I suppose. As we we won't get into the nitty gritty yet, but as we get to the end of this film, it becomes evident that Paul Newman's character is a total not just a washout, but he's incompetent. He's completely incompetent. Right. It's written well enough that as we lead to the the verdict, to the to the jury going and having to decide on this case, Paul Newman is basically directed to just have given up. He's slouching in his chair and there's no way, his mm -hmm. one big piece of surprise evidence is thrown out of uh, the courtroom, maybe because of corruption, who gives a shit? And then he does this like 15 second impassioned speech about American idealism and the moral compass. And this jury comes back, they're like, you know what? Stick it to the big guy. We're going to give this lady more money than she asked for. And everybody's happy. <laughs> it's like, fuck off. What? What a piece of shit. And as I read, David Mamet, who's a great writer, hated the ending too. He was told to rewrite it. He was forced to write it. Yeah, yeah. because uh, this is the 80s and America can't lose because they're right about everything. If this movie had ended where it's purported he wanted it just before the jury came back, this is like an all-time great courtroom film. That's what you want. You want something like this to be left up uh, for us to have our own moral discussion after you leave the theater. I'd like being able to shout objection. Because you know in a real courtroom, they get off, the hospital gets off uh, because there's no evidence. He hasn't done his due diligence. Sure. But, but this is like that conversation we always return to versus like artistic purity versus commercial success. Had it ended the way that David Mamet wanted it to... I am convinced it would not have made any money. Maybe. The first audience that went in would have been so mad at that ending that it would not have gotten any word of mouth or people would have enjoyed it. it that's my opinion, of course, yeah, but that's what I feel. It's hard to say. In 1971, it would have won Oscar for Best Picture if it had ended <laughs> without a verdict. Right. Is 1982, you know, shallow enough that we needed a block? I don't know. Like When you go through this, not a lot of people watch this movie anyways. I mean, if we calculate the total box- hit. Yeah, hit, but though. if you look at the numbers versus an ET, it's not sure. like the general public was actually interested right, right, in right, this right. film. So I, it's it's well regarded for good reasons. I, the directing's beautiful. I love how it's like minimally scored. The acting's insane. Like Paul Newman is amazing in this, and his depiction and the writing about alcoholism and his just inability to get his life back on track. Even the inside, I mean, I don't know what David Mamet's uh, understanding and how real this lawyer's world is, but we know this has been essentially now parodied and satirized. But, you know, the big corporate lawyers, the, uh, you know, infallible church, the conspiracy, like to hold, uh, it's not really a large corporation, but this big hospital and people's uh, reputations. Um, I loved all of it, mm -hmm. you know. I just turned the movie off and I was like, I cannot believe they uh, went cheap, you know, after all that work. So 
even though I push back there a little bit, I do generally agree with you that I think the ending is the weakest link. Well, there's two weak links in my opinion, but one is the ending. I actually personally <laughs> like his impassioned speech, but maybe I just like the language and the way that he phrases things. Yeah. I think that's where it should have cut to black, though. Exactly. He gives the that's impassioned speech to and cut to black. Yeah. And then we and then we end the What's movie. What's their disagree? That's literally what I said. <laughs> no, I thought you said you hated the speech. That's no, why. No. So I hated the speech in the context that that's what convinces a jury gotcha. to uh, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, essentially perjure themselves. But anyways, okay, keep going, keep going. Like you, you mentioned here before the break that you were not checking how much time is left. Both times I watched this movie, I was the same way. Like I'm gripped. I want to know more about this person. He's portrayed as to be such a loser throughout this movie, <laughs> even though it's Paul Newman. But he's like a drunkard and he lies about things and he's an ambulance chaser. Like he's not a good person. And I think what's interesting about this movie is that for the vast majority of it, even though I've read some criticism that disagrees with me, but I feel for the vast majority of it, he's not, they don't attempt to try and like, quote unquote, like rehabilitate him. Yes, he's like inspired to like do the right thing. But I think that's born out of like him actually seeing the results of their negligence on that one woman so take that for what you will it's like you know what i have to do this if i don't do this then i've completely ruined my life a hundred percent at least i can retain this one percent of a good thing that i tried to do i don't know i just found that compelling you have you put great actors into this and i think that elevates the material i think lumet brings his own style to this what i love about the filmmaking some people will find this boring, but I actually enjoy the fact where he just sets up the camera and just lets his actors go. And it's like, just act this out. I feel like it has so much more intensity to that when you watch, you know, uh, Paul Newman or James Mason read off probably like three pages of dialogue all while a camera is like just set up and like having them go versus like when you do like a, a force like close up here and then now a wide shot and now over here and cut over here. It's like, no, just let them go and let them be actors and let them feel like they're alive in, in the moment. So all that worked for me. The ending is like, okay. Um, I've read also like Lumet's like intended purpose of the very final scene of the phone ringing. Maybe I'm just stupid. I don't actually get what he's trying to go for. Like I read it and I was like, I guess, I guess it's supposed to be him She's drinking in bed. The Charlotte Rampling character is drinking in bed and he's only drinking coffee now. So it's supposed to represent her downfall and his elevation. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if that fully comes across no. in what you're you're showing here. Um, but I do feel like the Charlotte Rampling character, and this will probably be an 80s recurring thing for most movies as it was in the 70s. Boy, is she an underwritten character. Mm -hmm. It's really depressing when you get a great actress too in a role like this where there's nothing for her to do. She's the object of desire for once. Then she's the backstabbing bitch. She gets slapped across the face. That is your that is your role in this movie. <laughs> in our classic rewrite hypotheses, if you're going to try to do the all-American ending, what we now call the all-American ending, which is the good guy's got to win, the bad guy's got to lose. What a great opportunity for the backstabbing bitch to have given him the lead for the win. So like maybe she right. breaks the uh the nurse uh the nurse's identity because the evil lawyer already knows and has been hiding i mean we see that is that kind of how that gene hackman uh, john cusa i mean you know all of these kind of law films that come after they try to play with this a little bit better uh, if they're gonna go for a win in the final verdict because uh you know you can't have a good guy lawyer have all his ducks in a row either it's so boring <laughs> but yeah she's invisible 
And she's so good. Yeah. Like every time she's on camera, you're like, oh my God, this woman's too good for this role. Like she looks imperious and regal, right? And when he first meets her in the bar, you're like, yeah, this is the kind of woman a guy like this would, you know, obsess over because she's above everything. Even when she turns out she's working for the bad lawyer, her, her scene where she's regretting it in the office and then the reveal that she is working for the other team, it's believable because, you know, she's- good at that and then yeah you're right it's just she gets slapped in the face <laughs> and then you're like all right see ya thanks oh, yeah. thanks for being in the like, movie uh, yeah <laughs> thanks for being in the movie i guess and you're going to come back for the phone scene at the very end i mean so ultimately this is where i come across i think this is very watchable like mm. if this was ever on tv or someone put it on at one of my mini parties i go to wow Someone's going to say, should watch the verdict and they just throw it on the TV. <laughs> like, I wouldn't say no. Like, this is a, such a watchable, greatly acted movie. But even comparing it to other Sidney Lumet movies, I'm like, I don't know if this would even crack my, you know, into my top 10 of my of, of the stuff that he's output, let alone with a 40 year span of time. Now, looking backwards, like would I put this as like even like as my favorite movies of the year. I know we haven't gone through all of 1982, but I doubt that that's gonna happen for me or for this podcast so it's like it's good it's solid it's really well acted i would i would recommend people go and watch the movie but like best of all time or best of the year that's where it's like uh, i don't i don't know if i'd go that far i think this is the thing with how this has fallen out and i i'm gonna go back and be defensive about this if this movie ends where it ought to have even if you want to believe that the right quote-unquote right moral thing happened like we learned in 1971, this movie becomes instantly memorable because you have to leave the theater whether you liked it or not, and you have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And this podcast right, right. would be us arguing about whether, you know, the Catholic Church got its comeuppance. It? Oh yeah, did right? they get away with it? Yeah. yeah. Instead, we have to criticize how corny the tied neatly tied bow at the end is. And the other thing about having that is it justifies his uh, vices because you can be a piece of shit and still win. So, you know, you get that feeling. You almost want to forget the film because- Well, I mean, that, that aligns with David Mamet then. Mm. Wow. So, you know, I just, uh, I just feel like you're right. There's a reason. And there are a couple of good reasons we talked about why, for the most part, many people at least have heard of 12 Angry Men. And I bet not mm-hmm. a lot of people- have talked about the verdict outside of this year. Uh, we'll know about it. You've watched it before because for some reason mm-hmm. you were at Blockbuster and found this in a pile of used <laughs> DVDs. But, uh, you know. It's like, I plot through, like, Seven Samurai, no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Twelve Angry Men, that's eh, black and white. I don't, the verdict. Hmm. The verdict. Ooh, <laughs> tell me more. Actually, if it was like 10 years, that was an era of a lot of courtroom dramas. So maybe that's why too. See, this is the thing. I grew up, I remember in the 90s watching a lot of courtroom dramas yeah, or yeah. procedurals and stuff like that. So I think I just am beholden to the genre a little bit. I always use this as an example, and I'm sorry to do it, but it's still so true. With Law and Order and all of its spin-offs, the magic of this genre has kind of gone away because literally you can go and watch a pretty solid version of this every week mm-hmm. if you wanted to in 45 minutes. Are you going to get as good as a Paul Newman? Not all the time, but you're still going to get like the basic essence of what makes this genre I feel so good, which is like picking away at the case, getting that last moment testimony. And uh, mm-hmm. I think the courtroom specifically is great going back to like even Shakespeare and stuff. You get people to believably give a soliloquy out in front of people, right? You're presenting your argument at the very end. Even though if you watch real 
courtroom footage, it's the most boring shit in yes. the world. Like if you watch real court footage, it's like, oh my God. But you can you get to spruce it up in a movie setting. So it's actually interesting. This is so like baseball. You can make it interesting. Baseball is only interesting in the playoffs. And even then, you just have to take a couple naps between innings. This is why, Kyle, you loved Escape from the Planet of the Apes so much. <laughs> it is. It's a thousand percent part of the reason. Ooh, apes talking for 45 minutes? Yes, please. They're putting, being put on trial for being intelligent? What world is this? What kind of science fiction premise can I possibly understand? This is. It's hard you know. to. It's funny. We can go ad nauseum for movies we hate or maybe well, like. I was, was going to bring this up. Like. This is, these are the hardest movies to talk about because when it gets to like, yeah, it was fine. There's nothing, there's not a lot of deep themes. It's, it's fine. <laughs> like there's not much to talk around. So why don't we do this? Let's do some backstory and then we'll wrap up with some final thoughts here. I think you should talk for 20 more minutes about Law and Order. This was released on December 8th, 1982 in three theaters. It actually went wide the next week. But regardless, by the way, it like released on the same day is like 48 hours tootsie and like oh two other God. like huge movies Doomed from 1982 yeah. yeah um it is rated 3.9 out of 5 on letterboxd has a 7.7 on imdb a 77 on metacritic uh, and over in rotten tomatoes it has an 89 percent from 35 critics and an 88 percent from 10,000 plus users you can go and buy it on dvd and blu-ray you can also buy or rent it on itunes or youtube and at least in canada you can stream it on Disney Plus. So it is basically available anywhere you want to go and watch it from. Its budget was only $1 million more than Yes Giorgio. So it's $16 million. Its box office was $54 million. But if you adjust that for inflation, was $157 million. Which is so hilarious to me because there is no way a movie like The Verdict would even get close to even a hundred million dollars. I mean, look at uh, uh, Runaway Jury or uh, what was that Matt Damon one? Rainmaker or uh, was that Rainmaker? You're talking about movies that from 25 years ago. I'm saying in 2022, if a movie like this was released. I'm trying to think. There are legal dramas. Well, anyways, I also, I'm beginning to feel like your adjustment for inflation is an inaccurate way to evaluate the popularity of these films because you know so there's there's debates on this because i i can see it both ways yes tickets were less money back in 1982 so you would need to kind of see the amount of people that were going and seeing it for sure i I get like amount of people is probably a better metric to see how popular it was but uh the u.s doesn't track attendance so i can't tell you how many people went and saw it (laughs) the other thing that i've been very cynical of in the last 20 25 years is the public accounting of films i don't believe in the numbers that hollywood expresses i don't believe in what we're being told actors get paid and i definitely don't believe in gross totals there's just something uh, too obscure also don't believe that birds are real so birds aren't real they're satellites yeah i don't what is a bird but at any rate, I don't, I don't mean that as a personal thing. I just feel like if you talk about a movie like this and you say that it made $100 million, it just doesn't seem real. Well, right? No, I. What's a $100 million dollar gross you, movie right now? You're, you're, you're conflating two different things. Okay. You can't just say some random number that a movie got as far as like a box office gross. Like you cannot make up that number. Uh, that would literally be fraud and you could get slapped on the wrist. Where Hollywood does lie is whether or not a movie made money. 
that's a completely different argument because there's some fancy bookkeeping and that's why you can get a movie like um oh gosh i don't know i'll, I'll use like the john carter as the example like it or oh, like uh, world of work or the warcraft movie the warcraft movie that came out like a, a, 10 years ago it made 500 million dollars worldwide and it was said didn't make any money and i call bullshit on it it's like there's no way that movie costs more than that yeah. <laughs> there's just no way so yes there's some fancy bookkeeping that happens i don't, I don't believe in the gross numbers too and as we learn in this kind of film, the idea that you would get labeled for fraud is a little idealistic, frankly, on your part. <laughs> Let me tell you about American individualism and idealism, Dave. Let me give you this impassioned speech. Um, um, no. So the, the verdict's plot description is this. An outcast, alcoholic, Boston lawyer sees the chance to salvage his career and self-respect by taking a medical malpractice case to trial rather than settling. This is, of course, now the part of the episode where I get to don my favorite game show uh, sports jacket. I have the really long mic that Bob Barker used to use, so I'm just having that out here. And we're going to play Guess That Tag. Most movies have a tagline associated with the poster. So when the poster goes up in the theater, there's usually a bit of a tagline that's on the poster, helps sells the movie. Dave, one of these is the true tagline to this movie. The other two are completely fake, but you have to guess which one is the real one. First option is the tagline for this movie, the doctors want to settle, the church wants to settle, their lawyers want to settle, and even his own clients are desperate to settle. But Galvin is determined to defy them all. He will try the case. Wow, or that's a lot of is words. it the second option? Everyone wants to settle but him. Or is it number three? He's down. He's out. He has one last case. But what will be dot, dot, dot. And then the verdict would be, be, like, be right above the title. Mm. So which one of those options is the real tagline to this movie? I'm going to go three. The one that says he's down. He's out. He has one sure. last case. But what will be. Yeah. You are incorrect. It was the stupid long one at the very wow. beginning. <laughs> Wait, so the doctors want to settle. The church wants to settle. Their lawyers want to settle. And even his own clients are desperate to settle. But Galvin is determined to defy them all. He will try the case. What a bad tagline. I don't even understand how that's a tagline and not a plot description. It's a, like literally a plot description. Yeah. This is what the thing. I love the taglines that are like three words. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're capturing the movie. And, like, this really like, uh -huh. pithy little thing. Uh -huh. Too long. Too long. <laughs> all right. The stars, Paul Newman as Frank Galvin, James Mason as Ed Colcannon, Jack Warden as Mickey Morrissey, and Charlotte Rampling as Laura Fisher. Four great names, by, can I just say that? Just great character names. But anything you want to say more about these actors? I guess other than Paul Newman, because we've talked a bit about Paul Newman. Yeah, no, I, I haven't uh, really done enough background research. I'm like Paul Newman's character, uh, except I wasn't drunk. Mm -hmm. The uh, one other thing I wanted to add about Paul Newman was uh, he's a race car driver and apparently has a record yes. as the oldest uh, competing race car driver in a sanctioned match at like 70-something years old. He was drinking salad dressing while driving, too, Actually. so it was really... Remarkable. Gotta get that uh, vinegar in there. So uh, mm -hmm. he's pretty neat. The other problem of trying to rush this at the last minute, all of these actors have major careers. <laughs> Huge careers. Yeah. J James Mason was at the very end. Like he, I think he was, uh, he passed away four years after this movie came out. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, his extensive, extensive career. And like I said, he could read me anything. I just love, I love the sound of his voice. I can't overstate or understate how much I love the sound of his voice. I believe Jack Warden was also in 12 Angry Men. Yes. So I think that's like kind of the carryover He's into like this movie. one of the most important characters in that. Yeah. I mean, 
And then Charlotte Rampling, of course, was in this movie and then Dune. Those are really the two movies she's done. (laughs) No, she's, uh, yeah, she's got a big career. She's got awards. Huge career, yeah. And she's got, uh, she's got gravitas. It's just such an amazing cast. Well, the cinematography, I'm going to so butcher his name. I apologize. The cinematography is by Andrzej Bartoriak. Sure. Um, He'd go on to be a director as well. Uh, I will just say he did Doom and some other movies. But his three top, the three top films where he was a cinematographer would have been Speed, Prizzy's Honor, Terms of Endearment. I would say those are his three big ones. This was written by David Mamet, but based on the novel The Verdict by Barry Reed and, of course, directed by Sidney Lumet. So let's do this. Let's start with the book. Barry Reed is going to have a somewhat familiar backstory to the writers that we saw in our 1971 season. Because he had a bit of a thing, a bit of a life before uh, the, the writing of this book. So Barry served in World War II. When he came back, he goes to school and becomes an attorney. And not just any attorney, but one that focuses on medical malpractice claims. Hmm. Apparently, he has also won awards for trial excellence. I didn't even know that lawyers gave awards to themselves. Oh, but not? I guess if movies can get awards, I guess lawyers should get awards too. Uh, here's what one peer of his is quoted as saying. Mr. Reed took the greatest satisfaction out of solving legal problems for people. He did a lot of little things and never looked to get any credit or acclaim. For the small cases, he just wouldn't take a fee. So if you believe that, I guess, sure. I mean, it sounds like it's a little bit of like <laughs> brown nosing to me, mm-hmm. but whatever. After three decades of being an attorney going after uh, medical malpractice claims, he wants to write a book based on his own journey. And that book is The Verdict. It's published in 1980, which becomes a bestseller. So then we move over to David Mamet. How much do you know about David Mamet, Dave? Uh, how much do I know about David Mamet? Yes. I don't know. I know that he's written some interesting uh, things, and I uh, don't know him at all, like, personally. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, I get to introduce you to him, I guess, a little bit, because I know him actually primarily as a playwright. Yeah. Like, that's how I know David Mamet. I also call him a certified asshole, because if you read up comments on him and the way he's treated other people, like, he's a... He's a jerk. He's not a he's not, not a nice person. <laughs> Allegedly. I never met the man. I'm just going to say that. He's asked to adapt this book into a screenplay. This would be only the second film that he'd work on. I will say that even though I have some kind of philosophical disagreements with David Mamet, he's written some great movies. Like he is he, he has written some really great satires and other films that I'm actually a big fan of. His first film was the remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which had come out the year before. This would be a second one. Mammoth had made a name of him had made a name for himself in the theater first. His major works up until this point would have been The Duck Variations, American Buffalo, and The Water Engine. His play Glengarry Glen Ross would come out the next year, so he's about to really break big. Mammoth, though, his big primary thing that people know him for is dialogue. That is his kind of calling card. And I have no idea if this is actually true. But I do recall back in university in my theater classes, the claim was, is that he wrote dialogue to a metronome. So he would set the metronome up and he'd make it so it would go back and forth to the timing of the metronome. He often employs repetition and enormous amounts of subtext within his writing. So instead of someone just coming out and saying what they want, you can tell what they mean without them actually coming out and saying what they mean. So here's an example. I was trying to find a better example than this. But I'm going to use the example that they have on Wikipedia from Glengarry Glen Ross. So, Dave, you have a document that you can call up in front of you. Oh, God. I am going to be uh, playing the character of Moss, 
And you're going to be playing the character of Aranal. Uh, let me just open said document. All right. Where will I find your... Okay. Oh, here. All right. So you're Aranal. I am Moss. Um, and don't let me down, Dave. Okay. We, we, we've been rehearsing this for weeks. Right. <clears throat> no. What do you mean? Have I talked to him about this? Yes. I mean, you're actually talking about this or are we just... No, we're just... We're just talking about it. We're just speaking about it as an idea. As an idea. Yes. We're not actually talking about it. No. Talking about it as a... No. As a robbery. As a robbery. No. So that's an example of David Mamet dialogue. Going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There's a lot of back and forth with characters. There we go. <laughs> Yay, people are clapping for us, I'm sure. Yeah, sure it's too to read that. It's a good thing we practiced and you didn't spring it on me just before we pressed record. That's very natural, though, Dave. <laughs> we don't need rehearsals. We don't need a Lumetian rehearsal period right, here. Right. Anyway, so he's hired. He adapts the book. But the script ends as the jury goes on to deliberate. We've talked about that. Producers say, absolutely not. Tensions arise because Mamet disliked how Richard Sanek the producer who we've talked about before, basically called him up and told him this. So the, the story goes is that phone rings, Mamet answers it, and uh, Xanax on the other end going like, my uh, script is missing the last few pages. Wow. <laughs> going even further into the conversation, I, I don't know if it was Xanax or another producer, but they said, if we release it without the verdict coming back, we'll have to release it with a question mark at the end of the title. Is there any wonder why Hollywood went so wrong? These are the idiots that make these movies. No, it was this movie specifically. No, it shows the culture of producers' influence to try to turn films into money-making I, machines. I kind of agree. I think this is a very broad generalization, I realize. I live my life by broad generalizations. But I often hear that argument, and maybe it's just, it's weird. I dig my heels in, and I become obstinate about so few things, and certain things will just make me like hair trigger like no heels dug in but but i hate the the term that i hear all the time it's like well the general audiences won't accept this I'm like why have you tried exactly How do we know that they're not going to accept it <laughs> and that's what i always feel like people who like support uh, some like producer's decision about like well the, the 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 culture wouldn't have been ready for them to include this like how do you know you didn't try it yeah There's, show me your evidence that the uh, the the people wouldn't have been able to accept this uh, i feel because over a long term i was like well they can't do it we can't do that we have to tell them exactly what's going on we have to handhold them what do you do you you generate that into the viewing audience like we have to tell you everything and now if we don't then it's like oh this is too obtuse i can't understand anything that's going on it's so, so I arrogant know, i mean weird. i know i didn't dump 16 million dollars into a production i mean these producers don't either out of their personal pocket but you know that's a shit ton of money and i can understand mm -hmm. this idea of this being a business culture but it's also supposed to be art and that is a gray line but you know, at the point where you've given this project to somebody because you trust that they are capable of building it, you should not be turning around and being like, I don't trust you anymore. You're doing this all wrong. Right. I'm one rich person and I know how movies work. It's like, if you knew how movies mm -hmm. work, you'd be directing the fucking movie. So, uh. <laughs> I, to, to be perfectly fair, though, Singular Matt also agreed that he wanted the verdict to be read out in the movie. So he was also on board with what the producers thought. Um, I will say this, though. What happens next? Because Mamet essentially says, I'm not going to write you that ending. What uh, happens is about a year's worth of time elapses as different directors and actors who are interested in the project come aboard, leave, different writers come and rewrite it, and then rewrite it again, and then they're dropped. Uh, I will say, certainly, the two big names, there was... Um, 
Frank Sinatra really wanted to be the lead in this movie. Mm. Cary Grant wanted to be the lead in this movie. Robert Redford wanted to be the lead in this movie. Interesting choices. I think any one it's of those script. could probably yeah. have been done a decent job. Yeah. But Paul Newman was probably the better choice out of all of them. It was ultimately after Arthur Hiller passed. Like He was on as the director for a long time, and he finally like, stepped away. We talked about him, by the way. He was the director of Plaza Suite. So they hired Sidney Lumet. <laughs> We're just moving on from that. They hired Sidney Lumet, but he felt this, that so many rewrites had now happened that all the rough edges of Mamet's original script had been sanded down way too much. So he wants to go back to the original screenplay, but because he's much more cordial with Mamet, he convinces him to actually write the new ending to this movie. Lumet, as we've mentioned, starts his career as a director in television. And so from the very beginning, he was used to working very quickly. But as we mentioned, he also loved doing extensive rehearsals before shooting. So it allowed actors to really become comfortable with the characters and allowed him to shoot quickly in his like realistic style. So we've mentioned 12 Angry Men being his first movie, but up until 1982, he had also done A View from the Bridge, The Pawnbroker, The Hill, Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and probably his best movie, The Wiz. Uh, <laughs> I can calmly say that while I don't like love all of his movies... Like, that's a pretty stunning track record up until 1982. The only production note that I have here is that Paul Newman almost died while filming this movie. There was a light. There was a light that was being supported by these wood planks that apparently, like, just busted through this, like, 300-pound light and landed three feet away from him. So, like, they were very close to killing Paul Newman. Then people would remember this movie. Then they would know this movie. The other thing the producers wanted to do was they wanted to cut the scene where Paul Newman slaps Charlotte mm-hmm. Rampling across the face. But uh, Lumet, because he had final cut in his contract, uh, kindly told him to fuck off. <laughs> it says, no. Gets released, does, uh, gets a generally great response, and also does you know, decently at the box office here too. So that's the quick overview of the verdict. Just to compare this in 12 Angry Men, I think one of the powers... I mean, 12 Angry Men is... Is it a legal procedural drama or is it just a human drama? That's a tough one. But this one has that depth. We're watching not about how to try a case, but how people involved in a case act as human beings. And not that I, again, to Clement's point, I don't condone the use of this scene, like walking up to this woman who betrayed him and uh, Mm -hmm. like lashing out her physically. But it is in tune with his character. I mean, this guy, this guy is a mess. Right. And he's played so well because yeah. he has, he's the kind of guy who's literally the idea of an ambulance chaser is he was infiltrating funeral homes <laughs> to try to drop mm-hmm. his card to make shit money. And apparently only worked three times as, as far as the script was uh, suggesting. He's, he's nothing, you know, he's a garbage human being. What is amazing about Paul Newman is that, as we talked about this as well, uh, you still care about him. And that's the power of a great script. You don't necessarily want him to win, which is why I'm so disappointed by the ending. But you want to see how this guy survives uh, trying to find his moral conscience. And he almost fucks it up so many times, you know, in his yeah. chase. It's not like he does it in the right way. I mean, he's lying. He's sneaking. He's, he's doing all kinds of terrible things. He's still drunk for the vast majority of it. Well, I think, just sorry to break in, but that's actually one of the scenes I really love is he goes to that one nurse one witness and i like that she's like you're all whores you're all whores and it's like yeah that's exactly what he's doing right now he's 
He's he's well, like like prostrating himself to like try and get some money. That uh, that scene when he's in the hallway, the shot of his face as he comes to the realization mm -hmm. that he can't argue with what that nurse said. I mean, that's that's the power of this movie, right? Mm -hmm. We know it as viewers that this guy is unethical and he's corrupt, but him finding this um, sensitivity and idealism for the sake of, you know, uh, this young woman on a ventilator, like a vegetable as we, I don't know if mm -hmm. that's PC anymore, but her life's ruined by this procedure that happened. This is why at the end, you know, there's so many ways you could change the ending, even if he doesn't lose. I mean, if you're going to bring a verdict, why don't you have a hung jury and go to, because he wanted a mistrial, right. right? Why don't we get, it's so many, there are so many different outs where we don't have to make this about winning and losing because life is not really about winning or losing anything that we could have got conversation points and, you know, let this become something bigger. Yeah, I think I think because there is that power, especially with that the surprise witness, right? Yes. It's like he made me change, change the, the number. Yeah. So now I think I was with, like with, buzzing I, in that moment. You're like, yes. And then right. yes, and then the drop it. where like, they're like, no, you have to reversed. destroy that testimony. You're like, no, fuck, it's over. Right. <laughs> right. It's like I think that, that there's that element of doubt. It's and that would be the debate from this movie. Whether that would make it better or not, I guess I can't officially say, but at least that'd be interesting if we don't actually hear the jury come back. I get, I totally understand. The movie is still called The Verdict. Maybe you just name it something else then at that point. No, you don't even need to. I mean, this is the problem with American consciousness, right? It's like, I need sure, the answer sure. in the title. Fuck I need off. the answer. But I guess that's what I was gearing up to say is like, I think the debates after that is like, do you think there was enough evidence for him to win the case or not? And then that would be an interesting question right. to leave that. And the answer is no. It's like, well, they, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were told that they couldn't accept that. I'm like, yeah, but you don't just forget what someone impassionately crying on the stand said. You can't just wipe that from your memory. Well, this is the power of 12 Angry Men. So why it's such a great, such a great comparison. It's because yeah. that's what that movie's about. It's about what, what constitutes a reasonable doubt. And what's great about that film, other than it actually being a treatise on human nature, is that they only talk about the facts. The whole thing hinges on the testimony. And the debate is overcoming these biases and pre presumptions of guilt or innocence by carefully reliving each of the moments that they had learned from the testimony. This film is the inverse because Paul Newman has not submitted a single shred of viable evidence through the whole film. Right. Every time he finds a break, it's destroyed because of his incompetence, which is actually what makes this movie so compelling. When he finally gets his star witness because he's investigated this last lead, uh, her testimony is stricken from the records. This is why I think the ending is so disappointing. It's You're right. It's going away on the jurors' minds. But if the American system is supposed to show that it works, the hospital gets off because there's no evidence. But instead, what we get is the sort of inverse uh, cynicism, which is that juries are, are, are bullshit. They're easily manipulated. And at the end of the day, sure. you're just like, oh, but I feel bad for this girl, so we're going to give her money. That is not how a court system operates. I just assume everyone is guilty all the time. This is actually the part of the ending that really bugs me the most. It's one thing for, the, for them to come back and like, we're, we're going to rule in favor of Paul Newman, right? That's one thing. Can we give her what more really money? What really bugs me is they have to add that line. It's like, can we give them more money? I'm like, so okay, stupid. like, come on. So <laughs> like, stupid. Stop. Ruined the whole thing, you know? Which is yeah. not to say I ruined the performances, but it gave me this feeling after I turned it off. I'm like, I can't believe it. I just can't. It's sucker punch, right? Like, why? Mm -hmm. Why do that? Why do that? Why sully such an amazing script 
such amazing characters, such an amazing uh, reflection on, I mean, you want to talk about corruption. I loved the uh, practice staging scene where the bad lawyer is coaching mm -hmm. his witness on how to answer, how to manipulate the jurors using three words, referring to the victim by name and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I, I love that, man. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, that stuff is great too. Because I, I think what's so ingenious about that whether you are siding with them or not or see them as the villains or not it's a great instruction manual on yeah how to communicate a message really effectively right whether whatever industry you're in we love acronyms and using this fancy language that we speak to people who are already in that industry but yeah if you come in and start talking about like cardinal infarctions and stuff like that on a stage like no one fucking knows what that means so it's like this is what happened in three words layman's language that's what matters and that's what they're going to understand so say something that they're going to understand. Like, yeah, that's a great, that's a great coaching method. I would be interested. We could probably look this up on what the, how the novel ended and how that writer felt mm -hmm. about this film. Because up to that point, you can tell this is written by a lawyer. Not that I know anything about the law, but it is so finely detailed in how this world operates. And you're right. Like I I've got a degree in legal <laughs> from DeVry. It's one of my other degrees that I got. So I've watched uh, court TV before and it's nothing like this, of course. Right? <laughs> I've seen enough Judge Judy. I'm pretty sure I know how things go. The only time I've seen footage where it comes close to this is any like sort of politicized, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, documentary footage from like these really big trials, but it's typically never impassioned soliloquies about the you know human no. consciousness or sorry doing the right thing i mean maybe but that's not I, really i do remember if the glove doesn't fit you must acquit <laughs> that is what i remember well even the oj trial you know that was pure drama right and, oh, sure. and that's influenced by movies like this because you have these mm -hmm. lawyers who are you know character actors if nothing else because that is the public opinion that's trying that case not 12 jurors really and who knows what's what strings are being pulled behind the scenes. I mean, we, uh, Runaway Jury shows all this jury tampering shit. And what we now know is gerrymandering, which is like, you know, trying to draw these lines and put people into boxes, doing all this background information sure. to make sure that you get the result you want. You know, I, I love that stuff. And that's why this needed, if not a cynical ending, something functional right. and rational. So, yeah. Also another fun, <laughs> when they are interviewing the jurors to like see who they want to be on the jury. It shows Paul Newman's inability to be a functioning person. Yeah. He's probably still hungover. But he's like, have you ever been to a hospital? It's like, what are you asking me? <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> he's trying to seem biased. I'm like, what do you mean? Have I been to a hospital? So good. The only thing I want, the only last thing I want is to like kind of compare. I do think this is an interesting movie to talk about right after Missing mm. in one regard, which is you have two really big name American actors, so Jack Lemmon and Missing, Paul Newman in this one, who I found out this week were born one week from each other, like they were born in the same year and basically in the same same uh, month, uh, basically giving these performances in their whatever, 56 or 57 years old that they are, both basically this is kind of the tail end of their like starring blank name, like they would go on to be like supporting actors from here on out. So I'm, I guess my question to you is, who did it better? Paul Newman, yeah, Oof. without question, yeah. I mean, come on. You didn't even have to think about I, it, you didn't even no, blink. No, I know you're a big Jack Lemmon fan, but come on, honestly. Between, the, if you, even just as individual performances, you're telling me, I mean, I like Missing, but you're telling me that you mm -hmm. put those two things on screen together and you're going to choose Jack Lemmon, neurotic dad in South America, and not Paul Newman 
you know, strung out lawyer trying to figure out his life. I don't know. Mm. Maybe it's because he's good looking, but I think he was amazing in this movie. And I think, I don't know who won the Oscar, yeah, but he is, he's fantastic. Ben Kingsley and Gandhi oh, yeah, won the we'll, Oscar we'll this watch, year. So. We'll, we'll see that too. I mean, I. We'll see if I, we agree with that yeah. or not, but uh, yeah. But at least as far as individual performances comparing the two, come on, come on. No, I agree. No, between the two of them, I definitely think Paul Newman did the, did the better too. role. Career-wise, too. He made, he made salad dressing. You can't, you can't fuck with the salad dressing. <laughs> you, you can't argue against that. <laughs> salad dressing. Also, did you know all the salad dressing money goes to charity? He didn't make any money I off did. that. Wow. Yeah, no money in quotes. No, yeah, that's how a company continues on by taking no, no money. No, it said after after functioning costs. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. Two last things. One, to be the killjoy, what this movie is kind of exploring, although not really, is the fact that most court cases do settle out of court. Yes. Like most don't actually ever make it to trial. No. Like they do take the settlement or they do take a payout. So it's interesting that they do someone explore that. And he's like, no, I am just. I'm going to go and take this to court. I think the most more pressing thing is this. I don't know if this is just a movie thing. Maybe people really do this in real life. I don't know. Anytime I see someone drink a raw egg, I vomit in my <laughs> mouth. oysters. It looks so <laughs> gross to me. I like eggs. Yeah. I cook them, though. I had eggs this morning. I cannot think of putting a raw egg into my beer and drinking it and being like, this is a good thing. This is a good choice to do. Yeah, I don't know. I remember the first time I watched Rocky. And he's chugging, yeah. it was like 12 eggs in a glass or something. 12 eggs. Oh, and he's just like, how do you not vomit? But uh, I don't know, Prairie or say. Isn't it, isn't it like a, the rock or someone like drinks yeah. two dozen eggs a day or something like At that? At least they I don't purport know. to gross. buy into the myth of Rocky. I don't know if that's the first time you see it on film, but for me it was. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. The idea of drinking a raw egg, uh, especially in this era of uh, not just uh, not just bacterial sensitivity, but we have such shit food processing now that even lettuce can have E. coli. You know, it's like, right, you can't right trust right. anything. I mean, there were eggs on the counter in this bar. This is just, <laughs> just part of the service, you know? <laughs> to be fair, if you're in the UK, you don't refrigerate your eggs because of how they're differently processed. Yeah, they're, they don't uh, lose but the... Uh, Canada, the where shop. we are, you have to refrigerate them. Don't leave them out on your well, they, counter. It's yeah, actually they, bad. What is it? They not irradiate them, but they, they treat them so the shells can't keep They treat them, them differently, yeah. so the shell is different. That's so, yeah, you can spoil them if you keep them out on the I've looked that up. Oh, Anyways. You should look up butter, Fun produce too. facts. Yeah. That's why people do you refrigerate tune into the show. To, as a I farm guy? now, yeah. Okay. But when I grew up, we did. We say, actually left the butter out on the, yeah. on the counter. We, but we went through it quicker back then, too, maybe. Maybe that's why. We I did that know. once. We also got one of those water butter things where you like you can keep water mm. around butter, but they go rancid. That's what I find. If you leave it on the counter too long, it does go rancid. But I also hate trying to spread cold butter. Yeah, it's like the worst thing I started thing microwaving world, so. like mildly, just soften it up when we're in a rush. But you're right. Cold, hard butter. On, on bread. It's like Which ripping always through in restaurants. It. It's like, here's some pancakes and like rock hard <laughs> butter that you cannot spread at all. I'm like, well, that's pointless. Thanks. But they're like, oh, I saw on TV, there's just a block of butter that's allegedly melting on a pancake. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't work in real life. When it does, great. Because that's a great fat ratio. Fat Complete digression. I know that this is probably so obvious to you as a photographer, but it was only not until recently that I heard that if they're filming like videos, like commercials or photography of food, oh, that they lacquer it. Like they just put lacquer on it. So it's it like not even shines food. and yeah, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like it's it's a hundred percent fake. But how am I supposed to get a boner while watching a McDonald's commercials then, Dave? I should if, be if loving getting, that food. 
ba 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 ba. I'm loving it. <laughs> if you're getting aroused by uh, food commercials, you have deeper seated issues than discovering it's all, all fake. Right. Yeah, there's, there's a problem. There's a problem there. We're done here. All right, well, the machinist said that we do have to wrap this up here then. So let's get into Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. So both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael did go and see this movie. Roger Ebert liked it, gave it four out of four stars. But it's that Newman performance that stays in the mind. Some reviewers have found the verdict a little slow moving, maybe because it doesn't always hum along on the, on the thriller level. But if you bring empathy to the movies, if you allow yourself to think about what Frank Galvin is going through, there's not a moment of this movie that's not absorbing. The verdict has a lot of truth in it, right down to the great final scene in which Newman, still drinking, finds that if you wash it down with booze, victory tastes just like defeat. Pauline Kale, on the other hand, uh, I wouldn't say hated this movie, but was kind of medium, I would say, on this movie more than anything. But she doesn't give ratings, so I don't know <laughs> exactly what her star rating would be. She writes... When Lumet gets serious, his energetic, fast-moving style falls apart, and he photographs scenes from 50 yards away. The camera just sits like death on these dark, angled images, lest anybody miss the point. Lumet puts dirges on the soundtrack. They serve as accompaniment to Galvin's heavy breathing and to the unafflicted voice of Charlotte Rampling. The mysterious woman who shows up to complicate Galvin's life, Lumet pours on the melodrama and he stretches the suspense over a long, long period, keeping the audience palpitating for the turnaround, the arrival of the surprise witness. In its own somber and inflated terms, the picture is effective, but it's dragged out so self-importantly that you have a lot of time to think, would you hire this lawyer? The verdict is preserved in the guise of a realistic view of the corruption of our institutions, but it's about a sensitive hero's struggle to regain his self-respect. Mr. Smith went to Washington, and Mr. Galvin goes to court. It's the story of a man who was disillusioned and became a drunk. By the end, he has regained his illusions. Um, that is one aspect that I guess we didn't bring up. I actually, unlike her, kind of actually like the score to this movie because it's right. It's just like this like drone that mm -hmm. kind of keeps increasing, increasing. And, I, and for me, at least, didn't even notice it was happening until it like shuts completely off and then you're just left in quiet. I'm like, oh, God. I didn't even realize I was like clenching my, <laughs> my chair as I was watching this. Yeah, I, it's interesting I feel like from 1971, Miss Kale is becoming much more embittered as she enters these theaters. Like she, <laughs> like the way she's interpreting all this stuff, it's fascinating. You know, in 71, there was more of a measured tone. It's not that I mm. don't agree with her a lot still so far. It's just uh, when you read the copy, she's pretty upset a lot. <laughs> and Roger Ebert sure. is just, he's a softy. So it's kind of hard to... That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard. It's it's a good comparison. I actually like the score too. I... Uh, or at least I like the way that it was, it, like you said, it's very subtle. I love that. Yeah, I've never listened to the score by itself, right, right. but as accompaniment to the movie, it's great. And I love to, yeah, the pinball shadow silhouette scene, even the opening shot. Mm -hmm. There's like, not, as far as I can remember, there's nothing underneath this. You just got to stare at this <laughs> solemn man doing nothing, right? And I, I love this idea. He's an emo boy. He's a sad emo boy. Well, I, li I like <laughs> it. I like the idea that there's an old man who's, because I... You know, I've been in old bars where there are a lot of old men like that. And I don't know how they mm -hmm. get funding. Maybe they don't. And their whole life is just to sit there. That's it. It's it's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating. You know, you know, like you will definitely often see like what we call like VLTs in, in bars and stuff like that now. Or like Big Game Hunter here in Calgary for some reason is just over in the corner. But I also remember that when I first started going 
became of age, like just having like the random like video game console or pinball machine in the corner mm-hmm. tucked away. It's like, who does that? Who plays that? The, well, it's sad. Paul Newman. That's who plays it. Yeah. The, um, you know, it got big in the 2000s, those uh, countertop gambling, you know, you put the quarter mm-hmm. and you click the screen. I've got big, uh, I mean, it's one, one and a quarter step away from being a casino, but you know, you go in there on the weekend, somebody's always playing a machine somewhere. Whether they obsess over it is a completely different thing. I've never understood arcades at, at any level. I mean, I liked participating, but the idea- We have an arcade right now, Dave. But uh, chasing, chasing high scores, you see that a lot in films, and I've met some people that are into that, but you know, I don't know. Watch the documentary King of Kong if you want to see people freaking out over high yeah, scores. Yeah. It's, it's weird. great. Well, let's answer this question here then, Dave, that we ask every week. Does this hold up, and is it still culturally relevant? I'm going to say a measured yes and yes. Like I said, I love this movie. I think it's well acted. I think people will find it gripping. I hate the ending so much though that I can't, I can't say that I would recommend. I mean, no, I could, when I finished the movie, I thought maybe I should have watched this with Helen. I have a feeling if I could have convinced her to stay with it after the first five or six minutes that she would have enjoyed this too, just because there's a lot of meat on the bone. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, as you brought up too, court courtroom stuff is imminently fascinating. Whatever era it's in, you know, we just want to know yeah. about justice. So yeah, I I think you could. We want to preserve the illusion that that uh, that the justice system actually works. Yeah, it should. It's like politics. You know, if it's done uh, yeah. ideally or idiotically, it works really well. You know, if you just have people do whatever they want, it actually balances itself out. Mm-hmm. I will say I'm, I'm split on this decision. I think it holds up. As a movie, it's watchable. I think a modern audience would still have something to latch on to. Relevance is always the hard part for me. Is like, I don't think anyone talks about this movie. Even in the Lumet filmography, I don't think it's really discussed as much as his other like huge ones. So, I don't know. It's probably becoming less and less relevant as time goes on as far as like cultural influence goes. But as a movie, like, yeah, this is it's totally watchable. It's a totally watchable film. For sure. It was nominated for some of the big awards at the Oscars that year. It got five nominations, but the big ones were Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay. It was the only Best Picture nominee to win zero awards. I am interested to know what you're going to rate this movie here, Dave. That is what Dave and I thought. Uh, we'd love to know what you think, so you can send any feedback to us to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also, because we love punishment, release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie that we're talking about that week. So on Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of that film. If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page. That's letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what are you going to give the verdict? What's your verdict on the verdict? I I should just walk away now, right? (laughs) I think I'm going to go 3.5. I think I'm going to deduct a full star for the ending. I I loved so much Mm -hmm. about this movie, but I hate that I walked away from it and felt disappointed by it. It's such a weird experience to be locked in for 95% of the way and then Mm -hmm. to turn the thing off and wonder like, really? What? You have to finish the movie going, really? Yeah. So three and a half. 
Yeah, Paul Newman's a five. Like, the cast is a five. Yeah, I know. I agree. Paul Newman's a five in this movie for sure. Um, it's like we're back in 1999, Dave, because I'm giving it the exact same rating. So we're completely again. simpatico <laughs> that way. Basically for all the same reasons. Like, I think that the ending doesn't fully work for me. I wish Charlotte Rampton was given a little bit more to do within this film. But so much of this, I think, again, watchable, really well acted. I love the direction of all the stuff around what's going on in this movie. It just doesn't able isn't able to, like hit the landing there or stick the landing for me. So 3.5 it is for me. So even though this is only the, uh, what is this, the sixth movie that we've talked about here this year, we have our first tie that's going to go on. So do you think this is better or worse? Yeah. Do we think this is better or worse than Fitzcarraldo? Uh, better. Yeah. Better. This is the hard part. Cause I, I would probably put Fitzcarraldo above this mm. is what I would say. Interesting. Um, but Let's think. Let's, so let's talk this out here a little bit. So Fitzcarraldo is certainly more ambitious, but I guess, I don't know, The Verdict is probably better at what it is trying to do than what Fitzcarraldo is. I think it probably nails it for longer than what Fitzcarraldo does. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, and this is the problem with sort of ambiguous terms like better. You know, is it better yeah, yeah. to have a wider scope? Is it better to be well executed? Is it better for... Good casting versus casting a completely schizophrenic maniac. Is it, you know, is it interesting to pull a 300 ton boat just for the sake of art? <laughs> I don't know. Pretty, right? I, I, don't, I, don't I, think, know. I think this is where I'm going to have to end up here, Dave. I, I'm going to just have to go with my AB feeling. If someone right now, and I think this is partly to do with, with length <laughs> too, but if someone sat down and was like, okay, you have a choice, verdict or Fitzcarraldo right now, what are we going to watch? I'd probably be like, oh, well, let's go with the verdict. Depends on the mood too, right? If you have someone yeah, who's like, yeah. Verdict or Fitzcarraldo, but I really want to see a Vernard. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to see a German play an Irishman. That is really what I'm in the mood for. Well, I guess. Yeah. That's what we have to do. I think The Verdict's a better movie overall. Like, just okay. as a film, right? Uh, Fitzcarraldo is better as a concept and, uh, you know, all this weird backstory, but th- this is a good movie. Okay, well, let's do that it's then. So, movie. entering our list then at the number two position is the verdict. Just turn the movie off before the jury come back in. The <laughs> Just speech do your is own fine. fade to black. Yeah. Paul Newman delivers that speech beautifully because he doesn't actually even believe what he's saying. Right? And then and then just walk away from it. <laughs> well, and it's like what's an hilarious too, again, this is like, if you can believe this or not, because sometimes there's stories that pop up around films. Apparently that was his first take too. Like he just got up and did that speech and nailed it Accor- well first take you know according Lummet, to them yeah yeah first take in a lummet verse means that he's been rehearsing it right for a month yeah i love that i love the way he delivered that because it's not your classic like you can do this he's kind of like look i fucked it up but please <laughs> do the right thing it's amazing i'm a fuck up you're a fuck up aren't we all fuck yeah, ups a little day, bit folks? where that goes it's great you know appealing to the fact that nobody's perfect that's the way that's the way it should end it man Ah, okay. well, could have been a four and a half star that's movie. Our thoughts on the verdict. Um, let's find out what we're going to watch next week. Again, we're going through the best picture nominee, so it's only one of three choices that it can possibly be now at this point. So I'm going to push this button right here. So yes, we're next week. We are going to be watching Tootsie. Nice. I've watched that in a long time. You've seen Tootsie though before, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, I've. It's been. I'm going. I'm going to say twenty years, maybe, yeah. since I've seen that movie. It's yeah. been a long time. I mean. Yeah, it's got to be. 20s. I can't imagine someone doing a cross-dressing thing is going to hold up in 2022. But I guess we shall see. I don't know. I, we'll see. We'll see. I, I would say, like in the 70s. Well, no, maybe not the 70s. I think there's an opportunity, and it's Dustin Hoffman that maybe mm-hmm. this will hold up. 
Who's the is it Jessica Lang? No. Who's the Yes, it yeah, is. Jessica okay. Lang is in it. Um so we'll see. It might be stupid, but it might work. We'll see. Uh, did it win? We'll no, see. Gandhi won. So we'll see. Gandhi won best picture. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we should we should follow the machine. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna follow the machine and see what they're up to. There's a trail of oil that you could uh, oh. follow. Doesn't look like car oil. It's like a lube. Is that oil or is that me? No, that's oil. That's oil. Okay. Ugh. I think you should talk more about vaginal flowers.